all of you. Um, yeah, this passage is one of those that you, you learn about in Sunday school, um, and you never think about the context of the miracle that's happening, what's going on surrounding the story. Uh, it starts out with Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and high in favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And then it goes on. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. This, this is amazing uh, that the Lord is sovereign over the wars uh, of this world, the, the, the little girls of this world that are ripped apart from their families in times of war, and that his sovereignty and his grace is even at work in the times when we I just can't barely comprehend how it could be possible. You know, in 2011, another war in Syria broke out. After four years in 2015, the situation was extremely dire. If you recall, thousands had died. There was a refugee crisis as millions fled the country. At that time, in 2015, four years after the war started, there were 4.9 million Syrian refugees at that time in the world, there were 52 million global refugees back to Syria. 6.6 million more people were displaced inside of Syria for a total of 11.7 million Syrians who were displaced by the end of 2015 from their home. 1.3 million of those Syrian refugees fled into Europe. And a very, very, very small number of Syrians actually were received by the United States as refugees into the United States. But this started a political conversation um, that uh, many people were sharing their opinions about what Europe should do, what the United States should do at this time. You know, our church at that time, we prayed about how to respond to this crisis. And so this is a little bit of a Trinity Park history lesson. Um, and so um, our elders at the time felt very convicted that even though these conversations about immigration are very important for us to have politically, they're important in Washington, they're important for us to, you can share your opinion, I'm sharing my opinion right now with some people in Washington about how to help people who are persecuted around the world find refuge in the United States. We can have our political opinion and our political activism, but at the end of the day, uh, we believe that when the Lord the Lord is sovereign, and when someone moves to the United States, whatever the case may be, however they got here, when they arrive here, whether or not you agree with America's policies on refugee status, asylee status, what's going on at the southern border, that person is no longer to be referred to by a political term. That person is now to be referred to in a biblical term, which is called your neighbor. That person is now your neighbor. And we are called to love and care for them. Acts 17, 26 through 27 became a paradigm-setting verse for us in 2016. It says this, And he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward God 
and find him. So according to Acts 17, in God's mysterious, masterful mind, the reasons why immigration happens, the reason why your neighbor is your neighbor is because God sovereignly willed that that person would be your neighbor. And he sovereignly willed it so not just generally because he cares about where people live, he willed it so that they would know him, that they may reach out and find him. And where are people going to find God? Well, they're going to find him through his people. They're going to find him through the church. And so at that time, we became the first church in 2016 to partner with World Relief to receive a Syrian refugee family. We got some pushback. Um, Not surprisingly, it actually came from other Christians who actually disagreed with us about the way that we welcomed a Syrian family into the United States. Far uh, beknownst to us, we had no idea, but 60 Minutes actually chose this particular family of all the families that fled Syria to America uh, to run a highlight piece on them their journey from Homs, Syria, where their home had been blown up. Uh, The father, who was a dentist, died of ALS in a refugee camp in Jordan. And so a single mother and her three children all moved from the Jordanian refugee camp to North Carolina, and we were the church that received them. And so we had Trinity Park people actually on 60 Minutes uh, back in 2016 for this. And of course, we, that is not at all why we did this. We had no idea. Why do we do? Why do we do this? Why do we live like this as Christians? Well, I was thinking as Dan was leading worship, as the team was leading worship, uh, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you, our God. We do this for the Lord. We live our lives for the Lord. We We submit ourselves to him, whatever our opinions might be about what's going on in the world. We submit our minds and our hearts to the Lord, and we follow him, and we love our neighbor. And I would encourage you to continue to pray for this family. It's even, it's difficult for them even now. Uh, We are still friends with them. We're still connected with them. Uh, Since that time, their youngest son, who was, um, I don't know how old he was when he died, but he ended up dying after reaching the United States. Um, Their second son, their second child, oldest son, that is, um, one day was having leg pain, and he went into the doctor, and they ran an x-ray, and it was because a bullet was lodged in his leg. These are very real people, very real stories, people that need our love and our compassion At TPC, Trinity Park, our vision is to be a church who proclaims Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. Some of us will be called to go overseas like the Jungs um, and love the neighbors and nations afar. And some of us, many of us, most of us will be called to love neighbors and nations here, right here in Cary or wherever you live in North Carolina. The best way to... Uh, share the gospel with your neighbor is to, to actually think intentionally about what it looks like to be a neighbor to someone. You know, it's one of those things that just kind of happens and we can live very unintentionally about our relationships with other people. But in our community groups right now, we're reading a book called The Art of Neighboring 
this uh, sermon will definitely kind of segue with that material. Because interestingly, even though in places like Acts we can learn what it means to love our neighbor, we can also learn what it means to love our neighbor in passages in the Old Testament, like 2 Kings 5. God has had a heart for the nations to, to worship him, to be invited into his people, into his church forever. God created the world. He created Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve came all the nations And God's desire is that one day that all the nations, and not just his desire, but what will happen, as we read about in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, is that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship the Lord. And what's on the heart of God is that now, in our time, right now, that we would be a part of that growing international uh, neighbors and nations body of Christ that will one day, and even now, worship the Lord you know, when you see your neighbor, what we, what we typically see first is we see, um, we might see their age, we might see their kids, we might see their culture, we might see their language, and all of those things are very real. We might see their socioeconomic condition, but at the end of the day, your neighbor is who? Your neighbor is someone who was created in God's image. Your neighbor is someone who was broken by the fall. They experienced the sin and the misery of this world. Your neighbor's one hope for restoration and redemption comes through Jesus Christ. And in order for us to love our neighbor well, we need to be living in the gospel story. Not the, not the story of geopolitics, not the story of culture versus culture, but the story of the gospel of grace. And we find that story in 2 Kings 5 this morning. So in this passage, we're going to see, first of all, that ministry to neighbors and nations means seeing and responding to gospel opportunities. And then we're going to see that ministry to neighbors and nations is meeting physical and spiritual needs in Jesus' name. And then finally, we'll learn that ministry to neighbors and nations means facing temptation along the way. Seeing and responding, physical and spiritual needs, and then facing temptations. So first of all, ministry is seeing and responding to gospel opportunities. And we find that in verses 1 through 5. And we find these unpredictable, sovereign movements of God. The first one, in verse 1, we read that Naaman had gained great favor with the king of Syria. How? By winning a war, and actually God had willed that he would win this war against God's people. So this is an unpredictable thing that God is doing. And because of that, he had been elevated and had a closer relationship with the king. This man would have been considered, Naaman, enemy number one in Israel. So when people talked about Naaman in Israel, the conversations were not about Naaman's redemption and how he could experience the God of grace. It would be how Naaman could experience God's justice. How, how, how could we plot something that would lead to Naaman's demise? That would be the conversation that most people we're having, but all the while God is orchestrating circumstances so that Naaman would be touched by his grace. The unpredictable sovereign movement of God number two in this passage is that when Naaman and his forces win, they carry plunder out of Israel, and some of that plunder is human beings, in this case a slave girl who was probably about 11 years old, and she became the servant of Naaman's wife. 
So this girl is forcibly taken away from her family as plunder. And now I don't at all want to couch the egregiousness of this, the the horror and the pain of this um, on God's sovereignty as if it makes it okay. No, in in our experience in this world, we, we don't really understand all the things that God is doing, but our reaction to this, when we think about human trafficking, it is terrible and egregious. And we should do everything that we can. There are actually more slaves in the world today than ever today. And so we should do something about that, right? Okay, but in the moment, in this particular moment, we find comfort in the fact that God is somehow even at work, even in this, even in this type of injustice. This girl becomes the unlikely agent through whom God will work in the story. So this girl sees a gospel opportunity for Naaman. That is amazing. In fact, None of the rest of 2 Kings 5 happens. None of Naaman's life, none of his healing from leprosy. We don't have a picture of Naaman being healed in our lobby. If this 11-year-old traffic servant girl who is a worshiper of God doesn't have a moment when she responds to the Holy Spirit and says, God's grace is actually more important than my pain. And so I am going to tell my mistress, Naaman's wife, about my God. This girl is in a situation that she never wanted to be in. And I find it challenging that whatever hurts we have experienced in life, and we have experienced many hurts, and I know many of you very well. Your hurts are very, very real. But whatever hurts we've experienced in life, they're probably not quite as bad as this little girl's hurts had been. Right? And so... In the midst of, her, we see her story and her response, it's a challenge for us that in the midst of our pain, do we see the gospel opportunities? Perhaps do we see the gospel opportunities that have come to us because of our pain? You know, uniquely because of her pain and because of her story, she's the only one who is there. And you know, many of you have walked through dark nights of the soul. Maybe you're walking through a dark night right now. You know, maybe it feels like you're like Paul in that thorn in the flesh and you have cried out to God, remove this from me, and it's not being removed. And in the midst of that, though, God is sanctifying you and he's teaching you and he's, he is growing you. And, and maybe now and maybe one day, in fact, it is because of the pain that you've walked through, which I cannot explain, but as Mark said so well, only in Christianity can sadness and joy coexist, that in the midst of your pain, you can meet a healer who then enables you to tell other people about the one who has healed you. And this is what is happening in her heart. She sees her captor, Naaman, and she sees his disease as an opportunity for grace. And that is amazing. So she exercises simple faith. She doesn't just observe that this guy needs to know about my God. She actually speaks up to Naaman's wife and says, I wish my master knew my God. He would heal him. It's a simple articulation of the gospel. And because of this, the rest of the story happens. So how about for you and me? How can we see and respond to gospel opportunities? Well, if you ever hear someone say, 
a sentence like this. I just wasn't expecting blank to happen. Or I just don't know how I'll get through blank. That's an opportunity for you to lean in compassionately, to listen to them, and to tell them about the God who has met you in situations in your life just like that. Or maybe it's an opportunity for you to lean in to talk to them about an op- something that's going on in your life that's still broken, that's still needing to be affected by grace, and yet you are trusting in the Lord for that. We can think about this on a personal level in our conversations at work, at the soccer field, in our neighborhoods, our parks, our schools, and our companies. We need to be listening for gospel opportunities. We need to be thinking about the current Syrian refugee crisis, right? Here we are seven years later and there's a current refugee crisis because of the earthquake in Syria. We have opportunities now even to love Syrian refugees. Opportunities like the persecution of the church globally, pandemics like COVID-19, where people's lives have been upended and we can meet them there in their hurt and in their pain with the hope of the gospel. We can tell people, let me tell you about my God. He still works miracles for broken people, even if we are still waiting on the Lord, and we are to fully redeem our brokenness. So so we get into responding to gospel opportunities. How will God's people respond to this? We get that in verses 6 through 8. So first of all, we see the king's faithless Response. So the king saw the Syrians' arrival not as a gospel opportunity, but as a threat to the comfort and security of his homeland. The thought didn't even occur to him that the God of the universe who heals broken people might have sovereignly orchestrated for Naaman to be there among them. Instead of saying to God, thank you so much for this opportunity to show this broken man your gospel of grace, he cries out, Lord God, take this threat away from us. Take this threat away from us. And before we mock the king's response as unfaithful or faithless, we too can pit our own national and personal comfort and security concerns over and above uh, the gospel opportunities that are presented to us. We can be guilty of perceiving needy people, immigrants and refugees, coming to the United States as more of a threat to our safety and comfort than as a gospel opportunity. You know, the church at times can say, like we are saying with Mark and Esther, we're, we are so excited to send missionaries to the world, and I hope we're ready to not just open our hearts to that, but also our wallets and sending the jungs to the world and that's wonderful. But for us as Christians in America, it can be easier for us to open up our wallets than to open up our front doors. It it can be easier for us to value missions at a distance than to value missions at home in your neighborhood. The same people that we are so excited to see reached for the gospel in the world through missionaries If they moved here, we would find it to be a threat or annoying to us because we might have to change our way of living to welcome them into the church. The very same people that we're donating our money to to be reached for the gospel, 
we would have a difficult time wanting to have a personal relationship with them ourselves here in Cary. And that's really the challenge for us, is to see and respond to the gospel opportunities that the Lord brings to us. So we see Elisha's faithful response in verse 8, let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. What is the most important ingredient to, to change your mindset, to change your potential fear of, of other people, of, of the immigration threats potentially that you might see to America? What is the way to reframe that? It is to spend time with the Lord in his word and in prayer. When you have a, a small gospel response to other people, it is because you have a small vision of the goodness and the grace of God. And so you need to spend more time in the word of God. You can spend time in the Old Testament. You can spend time in the New Testament. When you spend time with the, with the Lord and his word, what you find is a God who is compelled that his grace would reach the nations, that would reach all peoples of the world because the hope of the human heart is the gospel of grace. And so something you need to press into isn't something very new. There's not a video series you should watch on immigration. There's not a new book that just came out on immigration that you should read. What you need to understand is not something very new. It's actually something very old. It is the heart of God for you and for all people to know him personally. That's how we have to learn to see and then respond to gospel opportunities. So first of all, it's, it's seeing and responding to gospel opportunities. And then second of all, it's ministry is meeting physical and spiritual needs in Jesus' name. And this is verses 9 through 14. So Naaman arrives with his entourage to Elisha's humble home. That must have been quite a socioeconomic difference there. Um, so what is Naaman's problem? Let's define his problem. Well, as Christians, we might answer, Naaman's biggest problem is that he is a sinner, and if he dies without receiving God's grace, then he will experience eternal separation from God. And that is, that's an absolutely true theological answer. But in Naaman's eyes, what is his biggest problem? Well, it's his leprosy. It's his leprosy. You know, leprosy is a skin disease that has no cure. I don't know about now, but at least at the time, no cure. And it can kill you. If it doesn't kill you, it makes your skin unhealthy and white. It robs you not just of potentially your life and your health, but also community. Nobody wants to hang around you because it's highly contagious. So what will Elisha, the prophet of God, focus on first? Will he focus on his spiritual needs or his physical needs? Well, he focuses on meeting his physical needs. So we get back to the story. So Elisha doesn't come out to meet with Naaman. He just sends his servant, which is really interesting. Um, he says, to, the servant says to him, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be made clean. So Elisha not going out to Naaman accomplishes two things. First of all, it's clear for Naaman that this is God at work, not Elisha. That's really important. Because in Syria, they had their own magicians and, you know, so-called prophets. 
And so it's really important that Naaman traces what will happen to God and not to Elisha. And then second of all, Naaman is used to being treated as the most important man in the room. You don't send your servant to give Naaman a message. You go greet Naaman. He's the commander of the Syrian army. But in sending his servant, Elisha communicates this. If you want to be healed, you're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to let go of your control. He even says, Naaman, well, I thought he would do this. This is not what I expected. This is not what I would do if I were in this situation. Naaman's going to have to give up control. He's going to have to be humble. So Naaman feels slighted, angry. None of this makes sense to him. He's about to storm back to Syria when, thankfully, one of his servants says to him, are you serious? The prophet has spoken to you. You're right by this river. Why don't you try it? Are you going to go back? Are you going to go back to Syria with your pride and your leprosy? Are you going to dip in this river and experience humility and healing? And so he has a choice. What will I do? And so Naaman, the military general, as a humbled man, goes down and washes seven times in the Jordan River. And miraculously, his skin is made like it was when he was a baby. He is totally and completely healed. We'll get to his conversion in just a minute, but I want to think about with you why meeting his physical need first was important. What would have happened if Naaman had arrived with his entourage and with Elisha, and he would have said, I'd be happy to talk to you about your skin disease, but first, I would like for you to sit through a 30-minute seminar on the history of God and the gospel. How would, how would that have gone down? Or uh, what if he would have said, let me first tell you how you can never die spiritually because it looks like you're going to die physically really soon. How would that have gone down? It's, it's kind of ridiculous, but we do this in the church all the time. We do this in the church all the time. Somebody comes with a physical need, and we're like, that's nice, that's great. Well, if you'll just come to church with me a few times, then maybe we'll help you. Um, they come with a very obvious need. They, they have a disease or something, and, and yes, we, instead of just praying for their healing right there with them on the spot, we, and we instead want to somehow make sure that in that very moment that we share the gospel with them, and of course, the goal of all of this, of any relationship, what we want is for someone to know Christ and to be converted spiritually, and that does happen with Naaman, but it would not have happened in Naaman if he had not first been loved physically. You know, we as human beings are embodied souls. We are embodied souls. You know, God created the body and the soul. If you remove the soul from the body, that is the definition of death. Physical death. You're dead if you remove the soul from the body. But what we want to do sometimes as Christians is we want to remove the soul from the body and preach to the soul as if the body doesn't matter. How much easier do you think it was for Naaman to actually believe in Jesus Christ once his body was made whole? Of course, not just because of the miracle, but he actually probably felt a lot better. Can you imagine how, how much better he felt after years of leprosy? How does that change his life to be changed physically? And then, obviously, he is changed spiritually as well. 
So gospel ministry is meeting physical needs and it's meeting spiritual needs, which we find in verses 15 through 19. So after he's healed, he's asking the question, what God am I dealing with here? This is not the God I grew up going to my temple worshiping. There's something going on here that's different. And he says in verse 15, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So he's convinced, first of all, there's only one true God. That's key. And then later in verse 17, he takes a second crucial turn where he says, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. He's saying not only is there one Lord, but there's only one Lord that I'm going to worship. So he makes the change theologically, and then he makes the change in his heart, in his worship. This is conversion. He understands who the Lord is, and he's now a God worshiper. But now let's watch how Elisha disciples him. I love this. This is awesome. So first of all, what we see here is he's patient with his discipleship. So Naaman became a Christian like five minutes ago, okay? He doesn't know anything. And so his first reaction is, hey, how much money do I owe you for this? I brought all this money and all this stuff. I'd like to pay you for what has happened. You know, and for us in church, we're like, whoa, I mean, obviously... Not the right response here, dude. That's not why you give. You don't give to get things from the Lord. You give out of worship. At least that's the right theology for giving. Um, but his, his, his natural response is, I've always paid for things like this. Um, so I'm going to pay now. And Elisha just gently corrects him. He says, you know, this is free. The gospel is free. You don't have to pay me. Gentle correction. Then Naaman makes a second Christian blunder five minutes after his conversion, and he says, hey, one thing, I know that I just said I'm only going to worship the one true God, but there's this thing I need you, you to forgive me for in advance. I've got to go into the temple with my king, and I've got to bow down to his God, and I've got to worship him with him when the time is appropriate. Basically, he's like, this is part of my job, and I'm going to... I'm going to do that. I need to kind of ask forgiveness in advance. And Elisha doesn't give him, you know, a book by Moses or David or John Calvin on theology. He doesn't hand him Tim Keller's latest work on idols. I mean, he just says, cool, man, that's fine. Because what's the point here? When someone's a new believer, yes, they need to be a disciple. They need to be equipped. But what we often do in the church is that we, it's like they got a backpack on and we just throw all the commentaries and all the DVDs and all the, the links and all the, thing, all the conferences, all the famous people, and we're like, okay, if you want to grow in Christ, here's a hundred things you need to do. And that's not what Naaman needed. He needed to experience for at least five minutes, hopefully a lot longer, the gospel of grace that he's actually forgiven of his sins, that he's not going to get it just right. None of us ever do, and he gets grace in that place. You know, Elisha was ready to minister to Naaman when Naaman showed up at his doorstep. Will we be ready to minister to other people? Will, Will we be living in a ready way when we have those opportunities? 
And so let me get specific about this. So meeting spiritual and physical needs in Jesus' name will at times mean that you have to be culturally uncomfortable. This person that you're, you're reaching out to, they may speak a different language than you. They, if you visit them in their home, they may uh, operate according to different cultural customs than you. They could have physical idols in the front room of their house. And in order to love them well, you're going to need to enter into that and remember that you're living in the gospel story. You're living in the story of the gospel. The, the story is not their language. The story is not their culture. The story is not their idols. The story is Christ's love for them. And you can learn to love them in that place. In fact, you have idols in your home too. You just can't see them, remember? And so you can get over that. You can move through that and love them well. Let me get specific again. Meeting spiritual and physical needs in Jesus' name will mean that you have to make your politics not a primary concern, but a secondary or even tertiary concern with them. That person, in fact, the greatest cultural barrier in America could be politics. It depends on who you're talking to. But it really might be greater than any other socioeconomic or cultural boundary marker. Are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? You know, if you're a, a Republican, you might need to understand that the Democrat across from you might be a Christian. Or they might not be. And if they're not, then they need to hear the gospel of grace. They don't need to hear the gospel in quotes, of your politics. That's not the good news. It's not the good news. If you're a Democrat and you're hanging out with a Republican, you may need to understand that that Republican could be a Christian or they might not be. And so what they really need is Jesus, not your politics. And so you need to go into the conversation thinking about what good news am I most passionate about? What do I really believe will solve the deep problems of this world? Is it politics or is it Jesus? Don't bring your politics, bring Jesus in. How can you do that? Well, our world culture, our American culture, is a culture of performance. It's a culture of performance in every arena of life. You're either measuring up or you're not measuring up. So what if you just broke that apart and in that culture of performance, you just gave them grace? You just gave them grace, the grace of God. Because it's a culture of performance in every conversation, it's a little dance of humble bragging. Oh, I did this or I did that. My kid's doing this, my kid's doing that. I went to this school, I went to that school. I drive this, I drive that. What if you just broke that apart and you responded with humility? Because what you did and you've learned as a Christian and what your, little, what your kid did and what you dropped, it really doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. And you can give them Christ instead of anything else. And third and finally, and this is a quick point, ministry is watching out for temptations along the way. So there's an interesting end to this story. It's not actually the end because God, Gehazi also appears in the next chapter. And so God's not finished with him yet. But in this chapter, he has seen, he brought the message of the gospel, you know, wash in the river. He was there, he saw Naaman healed. He was there for all of it. But then, what does he do? 
he wants Naaman's money. He, he has a moment here where he sees all that wealth and he covets it and he wants it for himself. So he makes up a little story where he's like, actually, my master said he didn't need any money, but actually it'd be nice if you could just give a small donation of all that you brought. So what do we learn here? When we're reaching out to neighbors and nations, we usually start out with God and his glory as a focus, but then something begins to brew that's almost imperceptible to us and it can happen in our ministries too. There's a complication that happens is that Naaman is both the focus of his ministry and the source of his temptation simultaneously. The people that you walk with, that you're most suited to love and meet with, um, you're most suited to meet with them because you have a very similar life to them, and so you probably have very similar idols and very similar struggles to them. And so when they start bragging about how successful they are at work, how successful their kids are, it's really easy for you to jump into that stream and to start playing that game as if that really matters. And in fact, you actually become tempted by their wealth and by how much their kids are experiencing success that it may actually lead you away from the very reason why you at first befriended them, which is because of the gospel of grace. And so we have to be very careful in our own hearts, whether it's beauty whether it's sex, whether it's money, whether it's power, wealth, child-olatry, as I call it, be careful because the person that you're seeking to reach may be the greatest source of your temptation. And we need to be aware to not take that path that Gehazi takes here. Listen, there's only one person who has ever faithfully loved neighbors and nations. Do you realize that? There's only one person, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced the perfect culture, the culture of heaven. There is no other perfect culture, by the way, anywhere. The only perfect culture is heaven, and Jesus left that perfect culture and became enfleshed, and he experienced human culture, and that human culture killed him. The human culture put him on a cross, because they didn't understand him. But in going to the cross, Jesus' cross opened up a Jordan River of salvation for anyone who will trust in him. Do you see, though, the progress of the gospel? It's one of humility. In order to embrace the cross of Christ, you have to humble yourself. Like Naaman, you can't bring your control in. You can't bring your performance in. You have to lay it at the door, and you have to say, I will submit God to what seems like a mysterious and miraculous solution for my sin, your death on a cross, but I will submit to it because in it is the salvation for me and for neighbors and nations. The only way you will ever see and respond to gospel opportunities is if your heart is transformed by the gospel of grace. The only way we will ever be able to see and meet physical and spiritual needs in Jesus' name as if we're looking to Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. And so from that, downstream from that grace, we can then go out and love neighbors and nations, remembering that you are also neighbors and nations. Don't just think of the neighbors and nations as other. You are among those who will be there in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, streaming in before the throne, before the Lamb, 
worshiping Jesus because he is a God of grace. Let me pray. Father, I'm just I'm so aware of um, just how countercultural your gospel is to every heart. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter who your daddy and your mommy was. doesn't matter where you were born or where you grew up. It's countercultural because it requires and shows us perfect humility. It shows us a, a grace that is only available to those who say, I don't have the solution to my problems. But I believe that you do, God. I believe that you mysteriously and miraculously have the answer in Jesus Christ for my deepest problems. When I ask that question, where is God in this? The answer for us is he is in Jesus Christ who has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And so, Lord, I pray that for us who already know you by your grace or for those who might not know you yet, that we would bend the knee, that we would submit, that we would go under the waters. We've been under the waters of baptism once if we're Christians, but we need to constantly be living under those waters of grace because it's only through your blood that we are redeemed. Lord, would you transform us to see the opportunities around us that we would show the world the gospel of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.